History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 309th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we have a location that was suggested by listener Laura Weichel, and I hope I said that right. It's the 1889 McIntyre Villa. This is not only a really beautiful Victorian home, but it's incredibly haunted and offers overnight investigations. So it's right up our alley. I plan on visiting this in the future. I'm hoping this next year, and I will plan an event where you guys can join me. Another really cool thing about this episode is that I'm going to be joined by the owners of the villa, Stephanie and Jeff Neal, and I think you're really going to enjoy hearing about the history and hauntings of this magnificent home. Before we get into that, I want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Keystrokes Amid Cobwebs. Arena, who I got to meet when I was on my trip in Iowa. So, so fabulous meeting you in person. We have a couple of Michelles who both spell their name with two L's, Michelle G and Michelle S. Sarah with an H, Rose, Ronald, Liz, Doriano, Chelsea, Ariel with two L's, Rick, Nicole, Fleur, I hope I said that right, Shelby, Brandis, Kelsey, and I believe it's Haley. Although your first name comes up as Steiner in the group, I'm assuming that Haley's really your first name. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The Atlanta Constitution reported on April 7th, 1923... Human fly falls off courthouse steeple to death. Stunt performer instantly killed in 40-foot drop to roof. A story of this sort with a man claiming to be a human fly certainly catches the eye of a Fordian. The human fly was a young man of 25 named Ray Royce, who was a daredevil steeplejack. He arrived in Murfreesboro, Tennessee in 1923 with his sights set on scaling the Rutherford County Courthouse. He asked officials for permission and told them he would only be using his hands and feet so there'd be no damage to the building. He also pointed out that he had scaled taller buildings successfully. They agreed to let him do it, and then he went about getting local businesses to sponsor his great feat. 200 people gathered to watch on the night of April 6, 1923, and a hat was passed around for donations, which came back with only $12. Royce was not deterred, and he began his ascent, the spotlight from a fire truck lighting the scene. He quickly climbed the brick exterior and made it past the second floor courtroom and onto the flat roof. He then climbed the steel cupola and stood over the weather vane. He'd made it to the top, some 200 feet above the crowd. They cheered, and that should have been it for the show. Royce climbed down to the roof, but then for a reason only he knows, he decided to climb the cupola again. A light rain had begun falling, and predictably, he lost his grip and fell 40 feet. He broke his neck and knocked a hole into his head people would find out that Royce was really James A. Deering and that Ray Royce was a stage name. Royce wasn't the first man to claim to be a human fly, and he wouldn't be the last, and he wouldn't be the only one to die. Why he chose to climb back up the courthouse will remain a mystery and certainly is odd. Get out. And now, this month in history. In the month of October, on the 31st in 1941, the USS Reuben James was sunk by a German torpedo. Construction of the Reuben James began on April 2, 1919 and was launched in October of 1919. 
This was a four-funnel Clemson-class destroyer and named for Boatswain's mate, Reuben James, who had fought heroically in the First Barbary War. It was assigned to the Atlantic Fleet and participated in post-World War I activities, particularly helping refugees. When World War II started, she joined the Neutrality Patrol guarding the Atlantic coast. The Reuben James eventually started escorting convoys to Great Britain and Iceland. Her final voyage would start on April 23, 1941 and launch from Newfoundland. She was accompanied by four other destroyers with a mission to escort the eastbound convoy HX-156. Right off of Iceland, she was torpedoed by U-552. It was a heroic act as the destroyer got between an Allied ammunition ship and a group of German U-boats. Her entire bow was blown off and immediately sank. The back end of the ship was below the waves in five minutes. The attack killed 100 men, leaving only 44 of the crew members alive. Pearl Harbor had not been attacked yet, so this sinking of an American ship happened before America had entered the war, making it the first U.S. Navy ship sunk in the European theater. Atchison, Kansas was once a really prosperous town, and John McIntyre laid down roots here. The McIntyre Villa began as a grand home for the McIntyre family, and over the last century, it's been a place of comfort for many people. For several decades, it was a boarding house, and then eventually it became a private home once again. Through that time, it has not only been a place for the living, but also for, reputedly, the dead. There are several spirits here, and the McIntyre Villa hosts tours and investigations. This location helps solidify Atchison as one of the most haunted towns in Kansas. Join me and the owners of the McIntyre Villa, Stephanie and Jeff Neal, as we discuss the history and hauntings of this historic home. All right. Well, I am so glad to be joined by Stephanie and Jeff Neal, who are owners of the McIntyre Villa, and they're going to share all about it with me. First, why don't you guys tell everybody a little bit about yourself? We can start with either one of you. You can arm wrestle or whatever. Well, yeah, we can arm wrestle. Um, <laughs> now, we, we, had, we love to travel. So we've in the past, we've actually gone to quite a few different haunted locations throughout the country. When we would pick different locations, you know, I'm kind of more of a history buff, and she does a lot more of the paranormal aspects of uh, the different locations. So we would try and find locations that would actually be complementary to both of us. What we ended up doing, that was kind of a big thing when we picked up, uh, within the buying the McIntyre Villa. You know, I've, uh, I've been in the pawn and jewelry business for about 22 years. Uh, I went to college here in Lawrence, Kansas, stayed here, had, had a child, and stuck with uh, business here in the in the pond business here in Lawrence, Kansas. And it kind of afforded us the, the luxury of being able to travel and, and see different sites. I honestly, we've been married almost seven years. October 6th will be seven years. And I was never really into paranormal, but I wasn't against it either. I just never thought about it. Jeff has taken me to Eureka Springs, the Crescent Hotel, like many, many times. Nice. Um, before we got married, we've been together about 14 and a half years. After we got married, we went for a weekend at the Crescent and we took a ghost tour. And I actually, we didn't take the ghost tour the first, the first time. I just thought, oh, those silly people. <laughs> and then I know I was like, they are so crazy. They're going to fall for anything. And then I heard some crazy noises about three o'clock in the morning and I was like, who orders room service at this hour? And then we came back a few months later and we decided to take the ghost tour with the other crazies. And they told us about what happens at three to four o'clock in the morning in the squeaky gurney wheel. And I was like, oh my goodness, I think I actually heard that. And ever since then, I have been just wanting to ghost hunt, I guess. How I describe it to people, I'm not looking for like any answers or I kind of think of it as a roller coaster where you get like like really nervous and then once you're done with the roller coaster, you want to do it again. So that's how I feel about it. So that's after, a great description. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's just a lot of fun for me. And I was never into the history until, you know, we bought the McIntyre. Ever since that ghost tour at the Crescent, I have just taken Jeff all over to different haunted locations just to get that like scared feeling, <laughs> I guess. Even I will listen to recordings for 12 hours straight just to hear a hello. I mean, it's, it's just really interesting to me. I'm not looking for like who it came from. It's just really cool to me. So that's basically, I guess, who we are, or <laughs> sort of. As far as ghost hunting goes. Keeps us entertained. Yeah. 
basically you're my kind of people. I consider myself to be an open-minded skeptic. So I kind of go in thinking, well, I don't know that there's really anything here. And I've just had enough experiences at this point that I'm like, okay, something's going on. If people ask me if it's a ghost, I'm like, I can't say it's a ghost. I just know it's something I can't explain. And I've definitely experienced it. And like you said, I want to experience it more. Yes. Up until we bought the house, Jeff's thinking was, like I said, I would take him to, I've taken him all over the place. And he, he tags along and he watches, you know, his DVDs while I do my thing. And if it's more of a history place, he will pay attention. Exploring. Yeah, he'll take off exploring, you know, listen, you know, pay attention to the history stuff. But his thinking was, if you want it to be scary, it's scary. If you don't, it's not. Whatever. Um, he knows there are things out there, but he's not going to go looking for it until we bought the house. So with that, with that thinking that he had been used to, he actually would think someone is in the house, run around like someone's in here. And so now he realizes why, what people are doing when they're ghost hunting at the house or when they're at different locations. He, re- I think now he knows that there are things out there. You know, when we first purchased the house, you know, the, the house kind of made it known that, you know, there were other spirits and entities there that wanted to kind of uh, let us know that uh, we weren't uh, the only ones living there. At the time, and so a lot of, especially you know, late in the evening, especially after the sun goes down, you would hear a lot of loud bangs and you would hear a lot of creaks and footsteps. And so, you know, if you're not used to that, have experienced that kind of stuff, you automatically assume that someone trying to break into your house or right. somebody in your house. And so you you kind of think more realistically, you know, how to handle that kind of stuff. So there were times three o'clock in the morning, I would be outside with a flashlight, thinking that somebody was trying to break in. And so it took me a little while to get accustomed to the fact that that's not the case. It's just the other roommates that we have living in the villa that essentially were there before us and are going to continue to be there long after we've left, I guess, or or, maybe once we've joined them, I don't know. (laughs) So you just kind of have to get accustomed to that. There are a lot of things we can't explain, a lot of things I can't explain, and that's just kind of how I accept it. I don't try and debunk everything. I don't try and, out of fear, try and negate everything. I just kind of soak it in and let it continue to happen. I don't necessarily mind it. That's what it is. He won't spend a night there by himself. No, I won't. It's, it's, you know, when you, when you hear a lot of that stuff continuously, it's, you know, I was kind of equated to like, you know, giving toddlers a bunch of pots and pans. You know, you just don't get the, a, a comfortable feeling that you would in a place that's not haunted or where you're not hearing footsteps and doors opening and closing. You know, sometimes when you come up from work, you kind of want to uh, unwind a little bit. And it's very hard to unwind. You have entities want you to get your attention. So I we experienced that quite that. a bit at the, at the villas. I've never been to Atchison, Kansas. Can you tell me a little bit about the town? Yeah, Atchison, Kansas was an extremely prosperous town, you know, in the 1870s to 1890s. It was extremely booming town as far as, you know, commerce went. It, uh, at the time, it had more millionaires per capita than any city in the country. And wow. at the time, it was also battling with Kansas City to be kind of the preeminent city in Kansas. So they had quite a few situations that happened, turn of the century with Prohibition, also with the recession, some different floods and things like that. Uh, Kansas City ultimately ended up putting, they, they have the Missouri River that runs through Kansas City along to the, the banks of Atchison, also onto uh, St. Joe. And so once Kansas City started putting bridges across the the Missouri River in order for people to be able to move back and forth, and with the other situations as far as like the recession, many of the people who lived in Atchison of wealth, uh, a lot of them came from the East Coast, so it wasn't very difficult for them to go back to the East Coast. But at the time, during the, Mr. McIntyre was there, so it was very, very prosperous as far as small businesses. You had a lot of people going West, a lot of settlers going West. Uh, to find their fortune. And so many of them had to, with the use of the railroad, with the use of the Missouri River, uh, with its connection to the Mississippi River, came through Atchison essentially to get supplies and, and to go on uh, on west. Some of them actually stayed in Atchison and continued to formulate their businesses there. So it was it was kind of a booming time, you know, back in you know the late 1800s. Well, you mentioned Mr. McIntyre, and that is who this is named for and who built it. Can you tell me a little bit about him? Yeah, Mr. McIntyre was uh, was of Irish descent. Came over to the states, Philadelphia. Yeah, Philadelphia. Yeah, he came into yeah. Philadelphia as a small boy. But we've and read different things. As a small boy, we've read. He was the youngster. Yeah, he was the youngster. He ended up uh, going through to Indiana and started learning the uh, the saddle and harness trade, working with leather goods, probably as an apprenticeship, and then uh, eventually made his way to Atchison, Kansas. Early 1860s. Yeah, early 1860s, and started a business uh, working with leather harnesses, saddles, uh, anything to do with wagons. A lot of the people coming west in their wagons with their horses needed service. Mr. McIntyre was, uh, he kind of had a niche. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there were other leather goods makers and things like that. 
you know, his, with especially with his customer service and his willingness to his perfection. And he just, you know, he wasn't always trying to gallus people. He was very honest as far as his business transactions, as far as his pricing and things like that from what we've read. You know, he was recommended by many people and he serviced quite a few people. And so he generated quite a bit of wealth through the le- uh, leather and harness business. And with his wealth, he, he bought a quite a bit of real estate in town and essentially kind of paid it forward to the community as far as helping other businesses and other individuals kind of start to their uh, their businesses, you know, with his business was down on 8th and Commercial Street. He had uh, he ended up building one of the largest convention halls there in Kansas. What what, uh, what all did uh, with this convention hall? What, what, from what you've read, uh, McIntyre Hall was actually the, yeah the largest convention hall in Kansas and held 2,000 people. They had political speeches, baseball games, basketball games, music. Uh, they even had yep. a uh, I think they had a roller rink on, on one of the floors. This is one of the largest buildings here in Atchison and, and actually in the state of Kansas. It was uh, many stories tall. If you come to Atchison now, it's minuscule into what it was back in the 1800s. You know, it was uh, many buildings stretched through Commercial Street, down Main Street, and the side streets as well. And so many of the floods in the early 1900s, the middle 1900s kind of destroyed a lot of those buildings. You know, his building was, was huge. I love that backstory because you hear about a lot of people making their way in the mercantile business or in banking or something. You don't necessarily hear, oh, I was a saddle maker, basically, and doing bridles right. and stuff and made a, <laughs> yeah. a fortune yeah. doing that. But what right. a great place to be right at the head of the West. Right. <laughs> I think that he was very, uh, probably very frugal in, in his dealings. And, and so he was able to invest his money from what we see pretty wisely as far as you know, generating his wealth and I believe he was one of the wealthiest men in Atchison. He was, especially, you know, there obviously were railroad tycoons or banking tycoons there as well. You know, one, one guy uh, generated his wealth, a German guy in the lumber business. So they kind of worked together as far as to provide services for each other in their homes and their businesses, things like that. I'm sure back then, everybody had a horse, everybody had a wagon, everybody needed lumber for their houses. So they kind of, you know, everybody had a niche. So sure. it's... Um, they were able to generate quite a bit of wealth uh, in amongst themselves as well. Well, with some of that wealth, he built a gorgeous home. I, the Your guys' house is just, it's amazing yeah. when I see pictures of it. It's just gorgeous. Oh, thank you. We, we love it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's an amazing place. You know, and he built that house in one year for $14,000. Wow. And it's very, um, if you've seen the pictures on the inside, it's, all the woodwork, and there are five fireplaces. It's very detailed. We think, we're not sure, but we think that he might have had it built so fast because his first wife passed away after living there only a year. Her name was Alice. She had a, uh, a long illness, so she might have been, um, he might have wanted to build that fast for her. Gotcha. Yeah, we kind of assume that uh, because, you know, even, even to today's standards, a house like that, especially being everything being built by hand, uh, would have taken quite a bit of time to build something like that. So if you can kind of think about it, it's, uh, to build a house of that uh, that size and that com- complexity, he would have had quite a few individuals working on that house, probably around the clock, mm-hmm. uh, to lay all the bricks, to cut all the wood. Uh, and in order to get that done, we're pretty sure that, you know, Alice starting to show signs of her illness early on. And so I think that he had commissioned many people to work on it so that she could live there before she passed away. She wanted to live in the house when it was done. I don't think he wanted her, obviously, to you know, live in the house while it was still being completed. We don't know if they actually lived in the house. So they probably didn't live in the house at the time while it was under construction. So I, I think that he wanted her to, to live there as many months as she could, enjoy the finer aspects of, of, of all the um, the hard work that, that he, had, he had done over the years. So That's there very is one sweet. Thing a lot of people don't know. Well, we've read one article so about the architect who designed the house. His name was W. Angelo Powell, and he lived in St. Joe. He was, he was pretty well. He was pretty popular in St. Yeah. Joseph, Missouri. Yeah, Angelo Powell was a pretty preeminent architect. He came from the East Coast. He did his apprenticeship there, and so when, once he finally made it to St. Joe, he had actually set up practice and you know designed quite a few other Victorian and time period homes and buildings there in St. Joe. But he was what all did he work? He did some work in uh, he, apprenticeship in uh, in Washington. Washington. He designed or helped design the Washington Monument. Oh, nice! And also the funeral. Yeah, one of the presidential uh, funeral cars. Yes. He also worked on the expansion of the Capitol building, the U.S. Capitol. Um, yep. And then he moved on to, to Cincinnati. You'll, you'll notice there's quite a few similar type of uh, buildings and architect, architecture there in the, in the downtown area of uh, Cincinnati. He would have done some apprenticeship work there before he moved on to St. Joe. Actually, 
you know, I guess, hung a shingle and began to do work on his own. And at the time, from what we had read from some of the documentaries, or the, or the documentation, Angelo Powell, that he was, at the time, one of the preeminent architects kind of in the Midwest and the West in the country. You know, he was a pretty important guy as far as uh, the development of architecture in the United States. I'm not very familiar with the inside of the house, so I don't know how many rooms are there, and were there, like, updates to this house? Was it electric or gas? Did they have any kind of indoor plumbing? We do have indoor plumbing. Lots of the bedrooms we have turned into different parlor rooms, but if we count rooms, I think we counted the other day, and there were, I guess back in the day, they would have counted closets as rooms, and we ended up counting, like, 27. Yeah, 27 rooms. If you take out the closet believe it was maybe 24 24 yeah it's quite a few there's 5200 square feet huge open attic pretty good size basement with seven different rooms in the basement wow that's amazing Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I kind of equated to kind of Silence of the Lambs, though, if you, uh, <laughs> if you remember that uh, that scene. It's, it's very much of a labyrinth down there. I mean, the, uh, the the basement would have been a full working basement uh, at the time. The McIntyres would have had you know, servants living on the on the property, and they would have used the basement. All, all the fireplaces are coal-fed. Uh, there was a coal chute that kind of came down into the basement. You can kind of see remnants of where the coal was. But all the fireplaces would have been coal-fed from the basement. So they would have used the basement for storing everything from canned goods to dry goods to fruits and vegetables, things like that. And so uh, I'm not sure how often the supply boats would come up the Missouri River, but they would have had to, you know, probably a couple times a year, and definitely not during the winter months. So they would have had to fill up the basements, quite a bit of food and produce and and things to get them through the seasons. And the mantel pieces around the fireplaces, are those made out of wood, marble? The, man, the mantel pieces? Well, yeah, the mantel pieces have, uh, they're made of mostly uh, oak and, and maple, but they've got uh, ornate tile that they would have ordered from the, I don't know if they would have ordered from the East Coast, maybe in Europe, but it was very common, much like... Each one is different. You know, it, much like, you know, you had like the Sears catalog, they would have had different types of catalogs that, that all the different individuals could have ordered stuff from and they would have shipped them up. So when you see a lot of those old Queen Anne Victorians or Gothic Victorians, you'll see a lot of that ornate tile work either on the floors or especially around the mantel work. Uh, also, we found too that a lot of those that tile work will, uh, when they would pick, the families would pick it out. Sometimes we kind of coincide with the interests of the family. You know, sometimes you'll see some that have, you know, ornate uh, like hunting type of motifs or you'd have uh, maybe uh, in the master you'd have something that has some type of music motif or some type of lady of the house picked out some stuff it might have some type of ladies motif of some sort so we, we found that there's always you could always find that those tiles and decorations would kind of might lead you into getting some idea of what the, the family was kind of interested in. I was joking with a podcast friend of mine and saying somebody needs to make a coffee table book that is just pictures of mantelpieces in these old homes because they're all so unique and different and they're gorgeous. They are, yeah. Stephanie loves to go to the Lent Mansion in, in St. Louis. I don't know if you're familiar with the Lent Mansion. I am. Uh, but a lot of the, that was also a, built during the same time period. So you see a lot of the same type of ornate work around all the different fireplaces. And when you listen to the historical stories, they'll tell you that uh, a lot of the tile work, even at that place, was very, it resembled some of the interests of the Lent family. And so you you, you kind of see that as you go to different ones, it's very uh, uh, consistent. So when you you come into another one, much like the McIntyre Villa, and you see a lot of those tiles, you, you can't think that a lot of the decoration was influenced by things that influenced the family that lived there. Obviously, John McIntyre's first wife died. I am assuming that he remarried at some point. She passed away in 1891. He remarried, and her name was Anna, in 1895. And she had three children uh, from a previous marriage, um, three sons that came and lived with, she was a widow. And so the three boys came and lived with um, Mr. McIntyre and their mother, Anna. And then how long did they live in the house? Mr. McIntyre passed away in 1902. And Anna passed away in the house in 1916. And Anna's mother also passed away in the house. 1902? No, she passed away in 1898. And actually, Sunday will be the day of her death. Yeah, she had taken ill. And so they brought her into the house to her to live out her, her final days there in the house. After Mr. McIntyre passed away, Anna's brother, Charles, and his wife moved in. And he was a prominent judge in Atchison. They lived in the house. The Anna passed away in 1916. Mm-hmm. Her son, Charles committed suicide in 1922 mm. and then after he committed suicide his uncle Charles who was the judge he sold the house in 1924 mm. and then it became a boarding house so 
I'd say the McIntyres or family of the McIntyre had it until 1924. Okay. And then it became a rooming house for how long? Till 1952. So it had a pretty good run. Oh, yeah, they did. Yeah, the McIntyre Villa, it, uh, you know, especially after the time of the recession, it, you know, it changed to many different owners, maybe groups of owners when they turned it into the boarding house, 1925 to 1952. And so we've kind of got quite a bit of extensive history on the, the period from the time it was built up to 1925. But a lot of things have kind of gone blank at that point. You know, Stephanie's doing an amazing job of finding, you know, she's starting to go through a lot of the archives and old newspapers to find individuals who actually lived at the residence just by typing in, you know, 1301 Kansas Avenue. Once it became a boarding house, I don't think they referred to it as the McIntyre Villa. I think they just referred to it basically by addresses and things like that. And so a lot of the history has kind of faded. And so we, we've kind of pieced a lot of that back together. Oh, I'm so glad that you're doing that because the history, you know, obviously is so important. I'm glad you guys had an interest in doing that. Well, it kind of definitely gives us insight into uh, many of the entities that are actually uh, still residing there in the villa. You know, Axon itself is a very, you know, has a rich history in, in, you know, kind of the supernatural entities and things like that based on the foundation, the Limestone Foundation. Many people who do research on Axon will uh, say that it has a, it, it draws a lot of energy. And so it, a lot of the, throughout the history of the villa, you know, we have a lot of people say that entities kind of come and go through the, uh, as well through the villa, uh, mm-hmm. along with the ones that you know, still reside there in the villa. Sure. So do you know anything about the ownership between you guys owning it and then when it was the boarding house? Yes. When it was a boarding house and up until 1952, Isabel Altis purchased the home. She moved to Atchison from Washington, D.C. with the hopes of restoring the home. So she lived alone in the house from 1952 until she sold the house and also died in the house in 1969. Yeah, Goldie was, uh, when, when she was in Washington, D.C., she was, you know, she worked for the FBI as a, um, she probably did clerical work and things like that. And so many people try and say that, you know, she was an FBI agent and she, things like that. But uh, Stephanie's done research and found out that she actually, you know, she worked for the FBI, but she, she worked more in the uh, clerical office aspect of it. Gotcha. So not an FBI agent. Correct. Correct. After she actually, sure. We think maybe she knew she was ill. She did go to Mr. and Mrs. Girardi, and they were, or Mr. Girardi was a pretty well-known contractor in Atchison, and she had approached him and asked if he would like to buy the McIntyre Villa, and he said yes. She didn't have a place to live, so they let her stay there while they did renovations. She didn't drive, so one evening we were told that her driver came to pick her up for dinner. And she didn't go outside and the driver just, he didn't think anything of it. The second night she didn't go outside. And so the driver contacted the police and the police contacted Mr. Girardi and Mr. Girardi came in and found her dead in her rocking chair. Her being 75 years old, not having a place to go. Maybe she knew she was dying. I'm not sure. We're not sure. She maybe had uh, been to the doctor and got, maybe got a report of, of an illness. Maybe she, you know, sometimes People, when they get to a certain age, uh, maybe they just you know, have, a, have a sense that they may be passing soon. You know, I, I know that my grandfather had that same situation, and he actually sat down with my uncle and explained to him that, you know, he's probably not going to be here much longer. And so it, it may be the same type of situation that, you know, maybe she felt uh, a premonition that she wasn't going to be uh, living much longer from reason. And so she just kind of liquidated her, um, her, her assets and, and sold the house to Mr. Girardi. Makes sense. There were quite a few owners when it was a rooming house or a boarding house. Once Goldie, her nickname Goldie, once she purchased the house in 52, then Mr. and Mrs. Girardi had the house from 1969. Once they both passed away, their four children inherited the house, and Jeff and I purchased the house in 2018. So there weren't a lot of owners from 1952. I guess there were three. (laughs) Oh, that's good to know because usually these places have either been abandoned for a while or they pass through a whole bunch of hands. So there hasn't been a whole lot of hands passed there recently. There hasn't been since 52, correct. Nice. Well, I know that the house offers tours and investigations. Can you tell everybody a little bit about that? Sure. We do offer, right now we are offering haunted season in action and it's known as the most haunted town in Kansas. So there are day tours on Saturdays from 12 to 2 and from 2 to 4 and you can purchase tickets through us or through the Chamber of Commerce. We also have tours where for up to 10 people, we can do a walkthrough. I'll give you a history of the house and any paranormal information you'd like. And then once that's done, I'll leave the house to you or to whoever books it for the remainder of the time. And that's up to two hours. We also do paranormal overnight 
And we just basically will meet someone at the house and give them the same tour, same history. We'll give them our Wi-Fi code. We will give them the door code. And then we head back to Lauren's about an hour away. So they have the entire house to themselves all evening from about three to five in the afternoon till 10 o'clock the next morning. Nice. That sounds amazing. I definitely am planning on doing that. <laughs> awesome. All the places that I've taken Jeff to or, not, or I've done, we kind of like combined everything that I enjoyed going to ghost or haunted places. Kind of like I'm no professional ghost hunting, so I don't, I'm not really good with groups. So mm-hmm. it's nice that, you know, we could just offer just that here's the house and we just leave them alone. They can do it. They can ghost hunt however they want. Uh, I do most of the, the historical aspects about it. Stephanie does a lot of the, the paranormal Q and A's there in the villa, and so we kind of. And as the season goes on, it gets uh, it gets really busy. But it's kind of neat because a lot of people from local people will come to see. People from the surrounding towns will come. The house was open very minimal to individuals since 1952, so they've a lot of people have grown up seeing this house and experiencing it, you know, in many different ways. And so now they have an opportunity to actually come inside, come inside yeah. and experience kind of what they've been seeing for most of their life behind the doors of uh, the McIntyre Villa. Do you offer the investigations and tours year-round or just during the haunted season? Year-round. Oh, yay, Every because, yep. uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm here in Florida yep. and snow and cold really isn't my oh, thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing nice that the, the house uh, heated during the winter, air conditioning during the summer months, obviously in the spring and fall. And so it does give an opportunity for people to come you know, year-round, many of the locations that people go to are kind of surprised when we say that. Many of the places that, that they encounter will have no running water, they have no electricity. So if you go to places that are cold in the wintertime, obviously you're going to be freezing. And if you're going to some places that are kind of hot and muggy during the you know the, the warmer months, obviously you're going to be a little uncomfortable in that aspect too. So one thing nice about the McIntyre Villa, we've kind of set it up to where year-round you can come and ghost hunt, experience the villa, and be kind of comfortable. Sounds great. I, we did an investigation at the Squirrel Cage Jail in Council Bluffs, Iowa, I think a couple weeks ago, and it was oh, hotter nice. than Hades in that place. Oh, no. Yeah. I A lot of people that have been in the McIntyre, have, they either volunteer there or they've just investigated there. I need to go. I've, not, I've never been. It is. It's, I've heard a lot about it lately. It, it's just amazing to see it in person because it's not like any jail that you've ever been in before because it's one of those rotary ones. So it was mm-hmm. just cool to see in regards to that. And then, of course, we got a ton of evidence. So it was it was a lot of fun. It was just really, really right. warm. <laughs> you mentioned that there was a suicide there in the house and at least three deaths at this point. How many people died in the house? Do you know? Nine deaths. And one of them being a suicide that we know of so far. Like I said, there were the 25 years that we don't know much information about the house. But mm-hmm. so far, nine deaths and one suicide. Yeah, nine deaths definitely being documented. One thing that uh, Steph and I kind of agreed upon is that, you know, when we're giving the, the history and paranormal, you know, tours and, and giving information, we want to make sure a lot of the stuff is documented that, that we try and put out there. Sure. We've had quite a few mediums who have come to the house and given kind of their insight on some things that could have happened, you know, during that time when 1925 to 1951, when it was a boarding house. But we don't, since we don't have documentation on it, we can kind of, you know, loosely talk about that if people want to, but we don't really try and put that out there just because a lot of times, you know, like anything, if you if you don't have documentation on, on something, you know, and you, and you tell a tale about something, it becomes extremely exaggerated very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so before you know it, you have a whole band of serial killers living in your house. And so... <laughs> Uh, which would be okay, too. That, that definitely would be uh, kind of neat. But uh, we definitely want to have some documentation. But it is kind of neat when we have different mediums who will come from different parts of the world, and they kind of hone in on a lot of the same things, and they experience a lot of the same things. But we know for a fact that, A, that we didn't tell them about it beforehand when they walked in, and they wouldn't have been able to read about it. And so... Because we don't post it yet. Yeah, we don't mm-hmm. post that kind of stuff. And also, they don't... Uh, many mediums don't really talk to each other about you know, their experiences. I've kind of noticed that. They, they kind of are, are kind of closed-lipped about a lot of things that they experience. Uh, maybe that's just the medium code. I don't know. They, they tend not to call each other up and have a, a group discussion about what they experience. When you have a medium who came from California, and then you have maybe one who came from, from England or something like that, and they get the same experience, and we know for a fact they didn't talk to each other, it kind of, the hair on the back of your neck kind of stands up a little bit. I think the one story that people do tell us that I I do actually tell a lot of people on my tours is that they all say there are lots of children in Hmm. the house. I know that Anna had three boys. There is a newspaper article of, well, it says Anna lived there with her brother and his wife, and it said lots of children. I'm not sure who all the children were because her brother didn't have any children. 
but I did say it, lots of children and a lot of mediums have said your second floor has children just running up and down, up and down. We've heard lots and lots of footsteps on the second floor. I don't know if they're children, but somebody's, yeah, somebody's running, running up and down the hallway at all times, all hours of the day and night. It kind of makes sense a little bit as far as, uh, you know, when it was a boarding house, you know, it would have been that many rooms in the house. You would have had small families, maybe even uh, single parent families living there. The military base is very close, Fort Leavenworth. So that might have been some type of association with uh, maybe some of the small families living there. But it also would have been, uh, based on the way the layout of the house is, it would have been a very communal living, too. They each would have had their own little rooms, just almost like small apartments. But they would have shared common areas as far as the kitchen and the dining area and things like that. And so, you know, it would not have been unusual for small small family living in one room. And maybe another family had some guests over. It, it wouldn't be unusual for those kids to um, kind of inquire to whether or not some kids who were coming to visit or, you know, who was uh, busy in the house, maybe who just moved in, things like that. And so you definitely, and you definitely get that feeling when you're there at, at the villa as well. You make a great point, Jeff. And a lot of kids back in that time period passed away because we had a lot of diseases that we couldn't do anything about. And I don't know that they would have been as good about recording, you know, that a child passed away here inside the house. And right. I sometimes wonder when you hear a lot about kids running back and forth, there's so much energy involved in that, that maybe some of that is a residual thing that's going on, too. It could be, yeah. And it's also, you know, I think that even having individuals pass away in the house, um, it also may have been a situation where they had, maybe it was a location of, of enjoyment for them. And so yes, maybe when they passed back. away, if they didn't pass away in the house, uh, they, they came back to uh, the McIntyre Villa because it was a place that they lived and they enjoyed. And so it was kind of a, I don't know if a sanctuary is the right word for, for entities, but uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the children, you know, even though they didn't pass away, came back to the villa because they, they enjoyed the time that they spent there when they were alive. Well, you've shared some of the stories or things that have happened to you personally. Are there some favorite things that you like to share with people or some other stories that you've heard from people who have been there for overnight, some things that they've experienced that you'd want to share with the listeners? I've uh, experienced probably the first place I've actually experienced hearing voices. I was working on a chandelier one one evening there in the entryway, and I, you know, pretty late at night, you know, midnight, one o'clock, when I was putting my things away, and I, I heard a lady's uh, very very faint, a lady's voice over my shoulder, actually compliment me on the on the chandelier. She said that looks very nice, and I, Stephanie had already gone to sleep, uh, and we were the only two in the house, and it caught me off guard because I knew exactly what I heard. Probably a couple months later, in the same location, I was doing again doing some work, and and I got it, it's almost like I. I got sprayed in the face with like a, a lady's kind of lavender powdery perfume. Mm. You know, it, it was a very distinct smell that I hadn't smelled in the house before. I and mean, I was uh, the only one in the area working at the time. Quickly caught my attention. So I tried to figure out where it came from. And so, but it, it smell went away probably within a foot after I had took a few steps into the dining area. And so I couldn't find it again. Again, it was in the same exact area where I heard the lady's voice. And then we had had, some time later, we had actually had uh, an investigative team had done some investigation work and they caught some shadow figures kind of kind of going up that master stairwell, kind of where I had experienced those those two occurrences. So it kind of gave a little more of a scientific validation to what I had experienced. It's kind of hard for anybody when you, know, when you hear a voice or you have a smell or, or something experienced, unless you have some type of a scientific either photo or things like that, then... Uh, it's hard to explain that. It's nice to see that, uh, that there's actually scientific evidence that, that kind of helped me reassure that I was you know, seeing something that to validate what I experienced. Stephanie's experienced quite a bit of stuff there as, as well. So, Yeah. There's a few times that I've had a girl's night there. And well, actually one evening, a few months ago, I think it was, I had a girl's evening and we were in the kids' room and I don't find the dolls too creepy, but a lot of people don't like the dolls. And so mm -hmm. I was talking to one of the dolls and just kind of said, are you happy we're in here? And we didn't hear anything. And the next day, my friend sent me a message and said, check your security camera because I think there's a voice on my recorder after you asked, are you happy we're in here? And so sure enough, I'm, oh, I checked the security camera. And when, after I asked, are you happy we're in here? A few seconds go by and you hear very clearly no, I'm not. Mm. And I don't know if I should be cussing on it. You can. <laughs> You're fine. Um, yeah, it did call me a stupid, dumb B word. And then it had the most evil laugh I think I've ever heard. Oh, my and gosh. There were like eight of us there and nobody heard. We didn't hear anything. And it was so clear and so loud on the security camera that, I mean, I posted it. And I hesitate to post because it was so clear and there's a lot of debunkers out there, which is fine. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, I have to post it because it's that clear. 
Well, they were all ladies but, on that the whole lady night. And it was uh, the voice was actually a, a, it was a male. A I voice. was just going to ask, was it male or female? So that's some proof right there. Yeah, yeah. and it's so it's kind of it still baffles me how we didn't hear that because it was so clear. And just a few months prior to that, I was with um, a friend and our husbands went to go get pizza and we thought they were home. So we walked down the hallway on the second floor and we heard Jess say, just plain as day, hey, we're here. We're like, okay. So we go downstairs and we look around and like, you did hear that, right? And she goes, yeah, I heard that. Wasn't it Jess? They were three blocks away. So again, another another Again, it was a male voice, but this time we actually heard it and it just sounded like Jess saying, hey, we're here. And so I got on the security camera and we, it picked up on all four floors of the house and it was very robotic. Like I, I say, I compare it to like a tracheotomy, mm. just very robotic voice, like leave the man alone. And it was really uncomfortable actually. And then you could hear lots of heavy, like heavy boots, footsteps, foot stomp. So that was pretty uncomfortable. But the voices to me, they just, like I said, it's like that, it's that feeling and you just get like, you're nervous, you're scared, and mm-hmm. then you want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just amazing that you're hearing something and then you have proof with your security footage. That's amazing. Yes. Uh, people do kind of laugh at our, all of our security cameras, but there are a lot of rooms and they aren't open rooms. So you can't just like put one in a room and then it covers three or four rooms. It just covers one room. And so we do have a lot of security cameras, but it's also nice because people will ask me to check a camera at a certain time because they think they heard something and I can kind of like. Yeah, we picked up quite a, she's actually picked up quite a bit of evidence. And, you know, when people, you know, they say they heard something and give a kind of, give her a document of time and she's been able to capture voices and capture shadow figures and things like that. And so it actually goes to validating some of the things that they've heard and, and actually gives them some evidence that, that they've actually weren't able to capture. So not everybody has infrared cameras, not everybody has a lot of the scientific equipment, or if they do, it may not be pointed in that direction. It may not be in mm-hmm. that particular room at that time. A lot of the entities right. probably are not the circus and getting them to, you know, do tricks and things like that. You know, they're living yeah. there. Some of them are residual, some of them intelligent. You know, they're kind of going about their day-to-day life as well. And capturing that stuff uh, any way we can is, is pretty neat. Plus, you know, like I said, when I had the girls' night, we thought it was just a dead evening. Like, nothing happened. And I just the next morning said, sorry, girls, I can't schedule an appearance. And mm-hmm. luckily for the security camera, I was able to pick that the voice that said, no, no, I'm not. They weren't happy that we were all in there. I will say, if anybody wants to book an overnight, we don't watch the security cameras no. <laughs> when somebody's there. No, but but it is but it is nice to know that there is something to back up in case you want. Hey, check the camera here. We've had someone. We just opened up a new room that we call the Conlon Library because Judge Conlon and a gentleman asked me to check the camera, and sure enough, you can see a door hit him in the back. And without that, I mean, we wouldn't have any proof. Sure. So it's it's kind of cool that they can just send me a message and I I'll check it for them. That's really nice. You'd said that Goldie died in a rocking chair, and yes. I thought I'd heard that the rocking chair is still there at the house. It is. That was that's funny because that rocking chair was like, oh, that rocking chair has to stay. And I think the owners they were really protective of that rocking chair because they knew Goldie, and so they were going to take it with them. And which I totally understand. And at that time, like I said, Jeff's thinking was, yeah, there may be things here, maybe not. I don't know. But he said if there are spirits here yeah, well, i don't want to piss one off so it has to stay yeah, i wasn't going to part from her uh yeah. from her rocking chair that, so that was kind of a deal breaker and we're still part of the communication with the um the, the children of the, of the girardis and so right. they uh one of them actually lives two blocks away he comes down periodically just to see how things are going and whatnot so very very right. nice the, the children of mr and mr girardi very very nice and very um supportive mm-hmm. of a lot of things that we're doing but they did tell us that they have seen the rocking chair rock on its own that if somebody sits in the rocking chair maybe too long, Goldie might get upset and she will play with the back of your hair. Mm. I will say that I have not seen the rocking chair move back and forth on its own, but we also don't sit in the room where we have it. We have it in the same room she passed away in. We just don't hang out in that room. Sure. I have had somebody play with the back of my hair and it's very odd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I know exactly what they're talking about there. Um, we've had people tell us that Goldie was a cat lady. And we've had, I've had a, a girl send me a message saying she sat in the rocking chair and heard a very loud hiss. People yeah, have felt. Around, those cats around the yeah. and things like that. Right. So I think she is still there. I mean, there was, 
the newspaper article says that she passed away December, let's see, December 21st. But it also says that she was probably dead for 24 hours before they found her. So Jeff and I actually spent the night December 20th because we were getting ready for a family Christmas and like just really odd things happening. There's a ceiling fan in the kitchen that doesn't work and it was spinning and hmm. um, pots and pans crashing and there were no pots and pans out. Um, our dog who, well, the house hates her anyway, but she's not scared of anything. And that house just scares her. She's hiding under the love seats and the, the furniture and so I honestly think she passed away on the 20th of December, but I do believe she's still there. I think there are a lot of things still there. I believe Mr. McIntyre is still there. Somebody has told us that there is a, a gentleman that stands at the end of the hallway. On the, there are two sets of stairs. There's the servant stairs and the, the main staircase. The main staircase, they say that or there's, there's a man just kind of watching over, watching over his house. And, but that is the same area where I've heard a male voice thinking it was Jess. And then we had somebody ask me to check the security camera. And his daughters were walking down the hall and said, we'll be, you know, we'll be right back. And then you hear a male say, come back. Hmm. So that end of the hallway, it doesn't surprise me that there are, maybe, maybe it is Mr. McIntyre. Well, he had the house built and obviously it was important enough to him to get it built before his first wife passed away. I could see him wanting to stay with it. Right. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. <laughs> well, one of the, the nice aspects about the McIntyre Villa is that we've, you know, Mr. Girardi, when he bought the house in Goldie, he essentially... Uh, renovated the house uh, in 1970. So if you can kind of imagine modernizing it in 1970, it had to move out. It had part of the, you know, shag carpet and things like that. So, <laughs> but the beauty about that is that it preserved everything underneath it for 40 plus years. Sure. So when we peeled all that stuff back, all the original flooring you know, from 1889, it was all still there. Nice. And a lot of it uh, was in extremely pristine condition. And so we've spent pretty much since we the first day we stepped in there, essentially renovating it back to the original state of 18, you know, 1890. So when you come into some time in the McIntyre Villa, you're essentially stepping back into time and experiencing it the way the McIntyres would have experienced it. You know, we're not uh, you know, changing anything drastically, but, you know, we're, we're going through and putting life back into it that he would have experienced as far as they do in the floors. All, all the rooms are set up in Victorian parlors. Again, when people come, they can sit down on the furniture. You know, you go to a lot of these places and it's the, the pieces are so delicate that you, that you can't essentially sit and, and relax and things like that. And so here in the village, we wanted to make sure that people have the uh, the opportunity to do that. So they can go into one of the parlor rooms and sit down and kind of soak it in, much like they're, again, stepping back into time, stepping back into the 1890s. Uh, we get a lot of joy of having the opportunity to experience that. Well, I just want to say thank you to you guys for buying this house and loving on it and taking care of it. I just love when these old places have somebody who wants to refurb them and get them back to what they had been before and keep them in that condition. And you guys, sounds like you're doing a great job. I look forward to getting to see it in person. I'm hoping this next year and getting to meet you guys, oh, thank too. You. <laughs> Definitely want you to come visit and maybe have an opportunity, maybe if you want to uh, come in and do an episode of one of your podcasts there in the villa. Well, that would be awesome. And I know when I've been doing these now, I didn't used to do the ghost hunting thing because I was like, oh, no, I don't want to tempt the spirits. And now that I've jumped in full <laughs> bore, I usually get a handful of listeners to come and do it with me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, All right. Well, you guys, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. <laughs> All, right, thank you All right. You guys have a great afternoon. Thank you. You too. Talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jeff and Stephanie have definitely had many of their own experiences. And of course, I love that Jeff is a skeptic because it makes his experiences that much more believable for me. I found both of them delightful. I think we probably could have talked for hours, not just about this incredible home, but about the experiences that we've had in several haunted locations. And as a matter of fact, we did indeed speak for a lot longer than what I shared with you guys here. I look forward to finding out for myself if there really is someone or something trying to communicate from beyond the veil. Is the McIntyre Villa haunted? That is for you to decide. I went over and liked the McIntyre Villa's Facebook page, and while I was there, I noticed something quite disturbing. There are two things that make me really angry in the world, the first one being people who go in and vandalize graveyards. The other being people who pilfer goods from historic homes. As Jeff and Stephanie said in the interview, they have all kinds of security cameras everywhere. Well, apparently there was a young lady, well, I don't know if I should call her a lady, a young thief who was female, who was there for an event. And on a couple of cameras, she was caught 
pilfering goods from this wonderful home. This is something that Jeff and Stephanie have put their hard work, money, tears, you name it, into. They love this house. And the things that are in it, some of them are their own personal belongings. So I just found it reprehensible that somebody would be going through there and stealing things. You, my friend, are not a part of the paranormal community. As I also said, I plan on visiting this wonderful home and doing an investigation there. Kansas is pretty central, so hopefully many of you can join me to do that. There'll only be 15 spots, so be thinking about it now when it comes up probably in the spring. want to encourage you guys to check out the website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I heard from Chelsea. Thank you so much for your email, letting me know how much you're enjoying the podcast. She said she's been intrigued with the paranormal since she was a kid, and she's had her own experiences with it. We'd love to hear more, especially for Halloween. We have the Halloween special coming up. We'd love to share your guys' personal experiences that you've had on the special later on this month. Also, this weekend, I'm going to be in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, doing a live show with Hillbilly Horror Stories and the guys over at the Brohio podcast. Hopefully, many of you are there to hang out with us. And I'm going to be checking out many of the haunts that are there in Point Pleasant. We'll definitely be going to the Mothman Museum. And I'm going to be staying overnight in the Low Hotel, which we featured on an episode here. And we'll have our equipment with us, so we'll see if we catch anything. And the building that we're hosting the live show in is also reputedly haunted. So hopefully I'll bring back some reports about that for you guys. want to thank you for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to welcome into the graveyard, Sam Skillington. You're going to be put into a garden tomb. Thank you so much for your support. You can find History Goes Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts.